Three Trips Ahead is brought to you by redtag.ca. Plan your perfect winter trip today. I have more travel food stories than any other. Most are good, some are terrible, but it seems that seeking a meal in a new country leads to all sorts of adventures. In a small village in Greece, my girlfriend and I tried to order dessert, but they wouldn't let us have it until we finished our lamb. And it turns out the waiters were actually two local guys trying to pick us up. Driving in France with my husband, a striking truck driver led us through a blockade to get on the highway, but only after we took 20 cases of ripe peaches off his hands, which we later gave away to a Michelin star restaurant in return for one of the best meals of our lives. When we were in Germany, despite the fact that neither of us speaks German, my husband would insist on ordering for me and every dish he ordered turned out to be pork. Every single one. I had the best Indian food ever in London and I had the worst pizza of my life in Pisa. I'm Maureen Holloway. Welcome to Three Trips Ahead, the podcast that aims to help you plan your vacations. If you're like me, food is a priority wherever I go, whether it's finding the hottest restaurant, the best open-air market, or the most amazing street food vendor. Culinary tourism is a growing force in the travel industry, and food now ranks alongside weather, scenery, and accommodation in importance to travelers. So joining me today is Suresh Doss, a food travel journalist who's pretty much here to make me hungry. First of all, I want to say hello, Suresh. How are Good you? Good morning. How are you? Good morning. You are a food journalist. Mm-hmm. How does one become that, and how, how do I become that? <laughs> I, well, look, I think anyone can become a food journalist these days because you have so many different mediums, right? Uh, back when I was getting into food writing, when I was enamored by it, uh, we didn't have social media. It was, I was pretty young. Uh, this was before the, the boom of the Internet. My food education came from my mom, who's a very well-known cook in the community. Not a professionally trained cook in any sense. But I had this education of knowing how things would be transformed in the kitchen and how they would end up on my plate. So I always had that as a kid. So um, because I grew up in Scarborough, my shtick is the burbs, right? So at a very young age, I was very very comfortable being in uncomfortable spaces. So walking into a tiny shawarma joint and just watching what people are doing and not worrying about language being a barrier and pointing at something and eating it. So I've always been comfortable doing that. So because of that, my career is now based on finding these places that are outside of the downtown core, where communities are built around restaurants, uh, where restaurateurs are trying to do something really traditional, uh, and they're feeding the community. So those concepts may not necessarily work on Queen West and King West. So I go to Brampton, Mississauga, Scarborough, um, up to North York, to little uh, Tehran, for example, because that's where you get newcomer cuisine, right? And it, it could be newcomer cuisine from a couple of years ago or people that have been doing it for now two or three generations. So I spent a lot of time eating essentially around Toronto. So that food journalism leads us to food tourism. Mm-hmm. And I'm personally, I, that's a criteria for me. Wherever I'm going, food and drink has to factor into it. I'm not really interested yeah, yeah. if that's not a big deal. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not alone. Yeah, well, People uh, base their trips on that. Well, thing. as they should. Yeah. Where, where's, what are some of the destinations right now for foodies? I hate I, that term, but I'm going to use it now anyway. So we're going to sign off here. You're going to go home and you're going to launch Instagram or like in a week from now or a month from now, you're going to see a lot of stuff on Mexico City. Really? It feels like everyone is going to Mexico City now. And rightfully they should because it, in terms of a place that's close to us, you know, a four, four and a half hour flight, it is such a rich, diverse, multicultural, but like really 
a place where there's this intersection of traditional and modern in the same city. And it's got something for everyone, but it's got something for foodies. So you hear about Mexico City a lot. And somewhere even closer, I think, you know, L.A. L.A. is... Really? I would say L.A. is the most exciting food city in the U.S. right now. Really? Yeah. And that's saying something because a lot of a lot of American cities are laying claim to that. Nashville, New Orleans, yes. all the, yes. are all saying, hey, we're the place to go if you want the latest. Yeah. And we're not... When you say Mexico City, you're not necessarily talking about traditional Mexican food, are you? You're talking about... Cuisine from all over the world. Yeah, I'm talking about a mix. I'm talking about traditional Mexican cuisine. Yes, it's always there because you have all the markets in Mexico City. But there's also Japanese Peruvian. There's also um, Colombian food. There's also You're talking about Japanese Peruvian fusion. Yeah, well, oh, head blown. Yeah. <laughs> like a good population of uh, Japanese people are in Peru, and they eventually made their way to Mexico. Cool. So you get these these interesting iterations of food, uh, and it. it it's, it may sound like fusion, but actually when you taste it, you're like, wow, this it, it tastes like this stuff has been integrating for many, many years. It doesn't taste like someone took category A and category B and mixed it. But isn't that true of food in general? I mean, we use the word fusion and we mm-hmm. think it's something new, but the Chinese and the Italian, uh, Italians devel- developed their cuisines, which seem so different, and yet they have so much in common. Pasta, Absolutely, for example. yeah, 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 yeah. How, when you go to a destination, be it a country or a city, whether it be North America or or Europe, or Southeast Asia, which I know you recently mm-hmm. came, returned from. How do you know where to go? I mean, it's not, it's, for some people, it's as simple as finding out what the top restaurants on TripAdvisor are and trying mm-hmm. to get a reservation. Yeah. But you're missing a lot of the big picture if that's all you're doing. Yeah, the, the I have a system. Okay, um, tell I, us your system. I think it changes from city to city, but it used to be, back in the day, you'd use site like uh, Chowhound or eGullet or TripAdvisor um, to, uh, to find places to go to. And then it became Yelp. And, and now I find social media has kind of just boomed and took over everything. Um, what I try to do is it's pretty simple. So if, I, if we say Mexico City, I think when you plan a trip, the first thing you need to know is where are you going to be staying, right? The, your general vicinity. What are your stomping grounds? And you want to get a lay of the land. Anywhere you travel, whether you travel for skiing or, or for food, you want to know the geography of a place. So what I do is I open Google Maps. Uh, I'm signed in at this point, right, in Google. And uh, I find the hotel's and I find where they're pegged. And then I look at any top 10 list, a very generic list, and I look at where those restaurants are generally placed. And this gives me a sense of geography, a sense of neighborhood. So that gives you a sense of where to stay. And from there, what I do is now I get rid of that list, and I dig a little deeper. So, um, for for example, um, in a city like L.A., Chicago, New York, there are lots of media, right? There's lots of lists. Everyone has a top 10. So you use that as a starting point, but I tend to ch- uh, search for tags on Twitter and Instagram quite a bit. So it could be hashtag. So it could be as simple as Chicago food, which is very populated. Or it could be the actual geotag of the area you're staying in. Wow. So Queen West, right? Or like Scarborough or Upper Bronx, Queens, that kind of stuff. When you look at that, you're going to be seeing the things that people love to post on Instagram, which is primarily food, right? And then it's a matter of distilling between the overly Instagrammy food and what looks like something you may want to eat. So that's one example of what you would do um, in a North American city. But in another city, for example, like Italy, let's take Italy, for example, where social media is not that prevalent. People don't really spend time on Twitter and Instagram. And the people that do are tourists. Uh-huh. So maybe you don't necessarily want that info. Again, use that as a starting point. But in places like Italy... Um, even like, for example, like I was in Bari, which is a, a, a coastal city on the eastern side. 
Bari is an interesting city where there is this clash and complementing old versus new that's taking place in one city. You have the old quarter, and right across the street, you have this modern part of the city. For somewhere like there, social media may not necessarily help you. Lists may not necessarily help you. You need a tour guide. So a step deeper from social media would be, how can I find a tour guide in Bari? A good one. A good one. That would then take me for a walk, right? And we would just go and explore. So, um, and then a, a step deeper than that would be finding a local. So say you're in Southeast Asia, where everyone's a foodie, like say, take, take Singapore, for example, or Malaysia, everyone's a foodie. The trick there is lists can help you to a certain extent, but how can I break the, the, uh, the barrier and talk to someone that I don't know, a, a random stranger? How can I walk into a hawker center and point at something and say, hey, is that good? And in places like Southeast Asia, all you have to do is just say that. And then you open up a conversation, you open up a can of worms and people will tell you where to go. Food is a wonderful uh, icebreaker. Yeah, sorry, that was a very, very long answer. No, 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 but like... that's exactly what we need to know. Yeah. That's what we want. We yeah. want to know, like, what do I do to find this out? I recently, I just got back from, uh, from Portugal and Spain and when I was in Seville, which I wish I was there today, <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. we, for the first time, we, we hired a food guide and she took us to tapas bars. And it and we it was a, a lump sum was mm-hmm. quite reasonable yeah. and and she ordered for us and took us to the oldest bar in Seville. I ate a lot of ham. Oh, I I'm going to okay, tell you, but it was yeah. amazing yeah. and educated us on it. And it was reasonable. I yeah. mean, I think a lot of people are are daunted by the fact that they'll think, oh, that's going to be incredibly expensive, but quite the opposite. Yeah, it is. I think you can choose your adventure too, because uh, tour guides will allow you to hang out with them for a couple of hours or a full day. It was, it was a whole evening. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And, so, and God, we liked her. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like when, when, like you said, food is an icebreaker, right? Yeah. And when you have food as chemistry, you're going you're gonna to get along uh, wonderfully. Um, but also, the money goes directly into her pocket in this case, too, right? So you're supporting the local econ- economy. Uh-huh. So I think it's another reason to support tour guides. But you shouldn't be intimidated because you can choose your adventure. There's something for everyone when it comes to tour guides. And then that's just eating in restaurants. I mean, mm-hmm. there's also, especially if you're airbnb it, if you want to cook. That's a whole other level. Yes, and, yeah, and then yeah. exploring markets, which are, and the markets are different all over the world. They're yeah. very different from what we experience here. Oh, yeah. I think one of the best things that's come out of the option to Airbnb is this ability to really immerse yourself two or three levels deep into a culture, right? So you're not just, you know, if you say Mexico City, for example, you're staying at a hotel, great. You'll go to restaurants and you'll eat and you'll have an awesome time. But like when you go to a market and you are able to pick up a piece of fruit or try something back at your um, Airbnb with a kitchen, that I think allows you to have a deeper understanding and appreciation for food and food culture. So if you're airbnb the cool thing is you have a kitchen, there's probably a market nearby, right? When you travel, there are markets everywhere, and your host is probably your tour guide, yeah. right? So you have that one-two punch. Operating for almost 15 years, redtag.ca is the place to go when you're looking to book travel. They give Canadians access to a wide range of travel products with leading tour operators, airlines, hotels, car rentals, cruises, and activities. From last-minute getaways where you can save up to 50% to trips planned out months in advance using their lowest price calendar, redtag.ca has the insight and expert knowledge to give travelers the best prices available. 
Plus, redtag.ca is partnered with Air Miles. Air Miles collectors are able to earn miles when booking a vacation package through redtag.ca, rewarding travelers to help them get to their next vacation sooner. Whether you prefer booking online at redtag.ca or calling one of their travel professionals, redtag.ca is there to help with all of your travel needs. Redtag.ca experts know what travelers need for their vacations and will help ensure you have all the proper documents and information to make your trip as seamless as possible and cover you while in destination. Redtag.ca combines great people with technology to ensure each customer experience exceeds your expectation. Visit redtag.ca or call 1-866-5-RED-TAG to plan your perfect trip. So food can be a gateway to the culture of a place. Do, mm-hmm. do you agree? And how is how is that the case? I mean, this is how you really understand a culture, I believe. And yes. obviously you do too. Yeah. You, you, you travel to a place lo- and you stay there long enough. You get a sense of how people are eating, how they're walking, how they're shopping, what kind of ingredients they're looking for on the market. So that is a gateway to just how people live and, and, and eat, eat and breathe in another part of the world. And I think for me, that, con- that, that learning, that education comes from when I see how people... Um, experience a food market or like just a Saturday market because that's where I feel like everything comes together. You have people from all walks of life in the same space. You see things that you may not recognize. Like, you know, I, I was in a, uh, Columbia has some of the best fruit markets I have ever been to in my life. And you see stuff that you've never seen before. And what that's a, is that? <laughs> yeah, like different types of mangoes uh-huh. or uh, different types of yams even. And for me, personally, through my uh, narrow vision in this particular case with food, that's a conduit. That's a gateway because it tells you how that one dish you may have had somewhere else in Toronto, in Little Columbia, came from, right? And how people shop and how they, they experience a Saturday morning. That's great. Let's talk about the, the, the sort of low-budget street food. Mm-hmm. Um, this can be a very dubious prospect. and A lot of people are afraid of it because yeah. there's no accountability for it. Yeah. And it may be something dangerous or horrible if they, you know, how do you deal with that? What do you, what are your recommendations? Okay. So I have, a, I have a nose for this. Um, and it just comes with practice. I think it just comes with practice. Generally when you travel across the world and you eat at places that are known for street food, they've been doing it for a long time. So, you know, I think we're overly conservative with our public health mentality here in, in terms of the street food in Toronto, but let's say, let's say you go to Asia and you're at a night market or something. I think the immediate things you should look for is eat from a vendor that's busy, right? Eat from a vendor that has has having turnover, because that means the ingredients are generally fresh. And if it's if the person's busy, generally it means that you know the person's known for something, right? So you rely on that. Rely on your on your senses. I mean, with the extension of smelly tofu, which smells. Yeah. Generally speaking, like if something smells off, like an oyster or or chicken or something, then you you generally skip that. Um, but Look, um, you're eating street food, and generally when you're traveling, there's oil, there's interesting uh, ingredients that are involved. My strategy is if I'm going to get sick, I need to get sick in the first 24 hours. <laughs> that way I can just get better and enjoy the rest of the trip. Right? Okay. So, get, rule of thumb, yeah. write that down. Get sick in the first few days and you'll yeah. be better off that way. What about allergies and food sensitivities and so on? I mean, what, do you have any advice for people who – it must be terrible if you're if you have celiac or mm-hmm. if you're – or if you're a vegan, although more and more countries seem to be coming on board. But that's still got to be a challenge. Yeah, the, look, the vegan movement is a big movement. Um, it's all over the world. Uh, especially it feels like in the last 12 to 24 months, we're all having the same conversations from Singapore to Chicago to Toronto, which is fantastic because I think food should be inclusive and it should, you know, everyone should be able to eat. 
So if you're traveling to a place where English is not the first language, I think there are a couple of things that you should uh, keep in mind. Uh, you should have a translation app. Like Google Translate is fantastic. You can essentially speak into it, and then it will uh, translate for you, and the person you're trying to communicate to can see the translation or they can hear it. So if you say just no shrimp or like can't eat peanuts, you should be able to get by with translation app. Or, um, you know, I have some friends that actually print out photos of um, dishes that they can't with a eat. Big, with a red line yeah, across the Yeah, sure. Um, and generally just ask. I think if you point and you ask, you can get over the language barrier fairly easily with body language, right? But um, I think in some places... You mean like choking and dying? <laughs> yeah, you can say point, yeah, point yeah. at the peanut and then like just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like motion that you're like choking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, I think we should be respectful that like, when you're a tourist in some places, sometimes traditional dishes are meant to be consumed a certain way. And there are stocks and these long uh, cooked stews that you can't necessarily change, right? But um, I feel like overall, it's a, it's a much better environment now to travel if you have some sort of sensitivity. I'm going to ask you, this is less to do with food and more to do with restaurant etiquette, which is different wherever mm-hmm. you go. Tipping is a confusing thing. Um, you never know whether to tip or how much to tip. Do you have any rules of thumb there? This changes everywhere when you travel, so it's really hard to have a baseline rule when you travel. There, there have been instances where in Asia, for example, you try to tip and they, they give you the money back. They will not accept <laughs> they it. They will not accept it. And I think, but in, in North American cities, I think, you know, tipping is part of the culture of eating out. And tipping large. Yeah, tipping large. I think like the, st- the average right now in Toronto, we're between the 18 to 25% uh, uh, mark right now. Um, if you really enjoy a meal, I th- my friends are usually tip twenty to twenty-five. I think you should. I think it depends on the service. I think if you have a good time, you should always consider a minimum tip, but then add on top of that depending on how your meal was. I'm going to just ask you. It's kind of a corny question, but I want to. I want you to tell me the best thing that you've eaten in your travels, mm-hmm. in, including here at home, the worst and the weirdest. Okay, so I would say uh, because Asia is still fresh in my mind, I would say Malaysian laksa. So this idea of, you think of pho, you think of ramen, and you think of noodle soup as a category on, on you know, like, everything's cranked up. So laksa is a noodle soup made with coconut milk and sambal. So it's got this curry-like quality, but it's not a curry. And it hits all your senses. It really wakens you up, um, and it's it's pretty amazing. I had amazing laksa in Kuching in Malaysia and uh, in, uh, in Penang. So laksa, I would say, is probably at the top of my mind right now. Um, and you wanted to know what the worst thing is. Worst or weirdest? Or they could be both or separate? Just In terms of like super weird, I'd say smelly tofu. Like, <laughs> smelly tofu is, is a challenge. I mean, it's one of those things like durian, this crazy looking fruit that smells just like just terrible. Not allowed on planes, not allowed in hotel rooms, not allowed in Airbnbs in Asia. Um, oh, it must smell terrible. It smells, it smells like just dirty socks. It smells like feet, yeah. Yeah, it smells like feet. <laughs> But then when you eat it, it's got this custardy, creamy, wonderful texture. Same thing with tofu. It tastes wonderful, but you have to get past your olfactory senses because as, as it's coming towards your mouth, you, you don't want to eat it. You want to put it in your mouth, but the, the, it's pleasing texturally and yes. the taste is. And it, well, tofu also adapts the flavors of whatever you surround it with. Yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Which makes it, you know, you're have making you me hungry. Oh, have I had, have, have I had what? Smelly tofu. No, I haven't had smelly tofu. Okay, well, I mean, th- there are quite a few night markets in uh, Toronto in the summertime. We should go to one. We should go I to will. one together and, and try I it. I would love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a date. Yeah. All know. right. Hey, look what I got out of this. <laughs> Suresh, it was a pleasure to meet you, and you're making me hungry. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. Mm-hmm. 
So here's what we know. There's more to a city's food culture than what you find on any best of list. So take the time to go a little deeper in your research. Geotags and hashtags help, but nothing beats finding a good tour guide to bring you around to local gems. Make sure you take the time to visit a market. An interesting food that you've never seen before awaits. And finally, don't forget that each place has unique customs and traditions, so be respectful when making modification requests. That was Three Trips Ahead, brought to you by redtag.ca. Plan your perfect winter trip today at redtag.ca or call 1-8665-RED-TAG. Thanks for listening to our podcast this season. If you liked our show and you want to hear more from us, you can subscribe for free and leave us a comment. We're going to take a break for the next little while to plan our next season and, of course, to travel a bit. But keep an eye out for us on Twitter at Frequency Pods or visit FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com for updates on our show and tell us if there's something you'd like us to explore for you. Three Trips Ahead is produced by Stephanie Phillips and presented by the Frequency Podcast Network.